You know, they say all men are created equal, but you look at me and you look at Small Joe, and you can see that statement is not true. See, normally if you go one-on-one -on -one with another wrestler, you got a 50-50 chance of winning. But I'm a genetic freak, and I'm not normal. So you got a 25% at best at beating me. And then you add Kurt Angle to the mix, your chances of winning drastically go down. See, the three-way at sacrifice, you got a 33 and a third chance of winning. But I, I got a 66 and two-thirds chance of winning because Kurt Angle knows he can't beat me, and he's not even going to try. So, Samoa Joe, you take your 33 and a third chance, minus my 25% chance, and you got an eight and a third chance of winning at sacrifice. But then you take my 75% chance of winning, if we used to go one-on-one, -on -one, and then add 66 and two-thirds percents, I got 141 and two-thirds chance of winning at sacrifice. See, Joe, the numbers don't lie, and they spell disaster for you at sacrifice. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. What is going on with UFC and Cormier and Brock Lesnar and that whole thing? I thought the angle was because I was surprised they gave Brock the title. Yeah. And in such a squash match. So maybe they want to do a champion versus champion thing where their WWE champion goes in to I'm fight so the double champ. The WWE would do that because that's one of Vince's like mantras is never promote something you're not going to deliver. I know. Deliver. Is the title up for grabs in Survivor Series or no? It's just an no. exhibition match. Yeah. Okay. Because I was thinking maybe. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If it happens, it'll be next year, like April or March. Is there another pay-per-view before then? There are minor ones, but not big ones. So there or another a... Royal Rumble in January. Okay. So maybe so he'll he lose it there. Yeah. Who would he lose it to? There's not really a great person. Oh, I thought they re-signed him. They did, right? So he yeah, well, they fighting. resigned him for it's unclear for an un for like I think that said two appearances or an unclear amount of appearances. I mean, this has been going on with Brock Lesnar uh, for a while now, where it seems like he's leaving, and then he keeps on showing up, and they keep on signing these short term deals with him. But what'll be different this time is that last time he fought in the UFC, he had retired from WWE, yes. so he wasn't in contract. Whereas this time, he might actually fight while still under contract. Yeah. So they must have negotiated that in. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to do something where they're going to play both sides. If he wins, then they could promote that. If he loses, then they're going to like use that as a whole angle where somebody's yeah. like, oh, you betrayed us. Yeah, you humiliated the WWE. And you, you, know, you, don't, you don't deserve to be champion if you're going to lose and something like that. Maybe. I mean, it will get a lot of mainstream like ESPN attention and all of that kind of stuff. There is a certain value for having the champion yeah it's a big risk on wwe's part i'm gonna fight you i'm sorry what parking lot after school it's on teachers don't fight i want everybody to see this
your fight. Who else knows about this? I don't need to be liked. I need to educate. I just don't know the first thing about fighting. Make a first. Are you serious? Today in the podcast, I'm here per usual. We have Paul, and in the studio, we have Evan Susser. You slang movies for a living, right? Yeah, sure. So you write movies. Mm -hmm. You've written a movie that's been made into a movie, which people don't realize. That's hard. You could write for years. Getting paid to write doesn't mean you get your movies made, right? Right. Well, yeah, I think that uh, for someone explained that for every movie that gets made, 10 get uh, developed. And that means that they pay writers and uh and you know work on it and have meetings and maybe even attach a director attach a movie star and then don't end up making it uh so believe it or not of all the movies that you see that's the best of the 10 um and uh so yeah so i've worked on uh a bunch of projects my movie fist fight was one movie that got made i've written on uh the sonic the hedgehog movie which will come out next year uh, and then a bunch of other things like the Jetsons and Wedding Crashers too, uh, which who knows when those will come out, if ever. But they've been announced, right? They're, they've been announced. I've seen right. sure. them on mm-hmm. IMDb and stuff. Yeah. And then Fist Fight was with Charlie Day and, and Ice, Ice Cube, Cube yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, which I have a weird thing yeah, with. So you because, are, I was wondering if you're going to tell the story. Well, yeah, because I was watching it, and then halfway through, my studio got flooded, like a big water main burst, and. It took me a long time to finish that movie. I only finished it recently. Oh, you did? I didn't know that. I was so nervous that something (laughs) was going to happen to my pipes. (laughs) So when I restarted it, it was like right at the beginning of their fight. Uh huh. And it was actually like, whoa, they're actually doing this. They're actually kind of try to do like a, like one of those epic fights, like Mm -hmm. from, because it's not like an action movie. I would compare it to like They Live. You know, where it was more of a throwdown in the script it was uh they live was mentioned uh because uh they live is famous for having the longest uh fight in uh film history and so in the script we wrote you know they live as the longest fight in in cinematic history we're going to beat it and i don't know if that ended up actually being the case but uh but that was the goal at least i was always curious about the writing process of a fight scene Mm-hmm. Do you just write, okay, now they fight? Or do you guys like actually you know, describe it, some It's stuff? interesting. In the first version of the script, it was kind of described a little more poetically, uh, where we said, okay, they fight, and here are some of the moments, and you know, kind of the big beats of like, Charlie goes down, and then he gets back up, and then he says this snappy line, and that snappy line. But when we actually got to making the movie, the director and everyone else was like, okay, well, what does this actually look like? And what, you know, and then we really did get into writing. Okay, so, you know, there's a stop sign on the bus and he throws it in his face and really beat for beat for beat uh, moment. Uh, we really did write out a lot. And then we did work with a lot of very talented, you know, fight choreographers and all that kind of stuff. And they did add a lot of, you know, little flourishes. And just it is, you can write it out, but just when you're actually on set and you're like wait a minute how is that person falling onto a car and then preparing for the next move we need a transition beat um so uh there were some kind of extra things added to that but it was written out pretty uh pretty thoroughly 
Because I always thought once the fight choreographers take over, mm-hmm. they take it over. They and- do take it over. No, no, I mean, but that you don't have to write it out anymore. Like the script is done, but you guys still have to kind of write out what they're adding to what the fight choreographers are adding. We wrote before we got to fight choreographers, but they're all different versions of it. You know, some movies, it is just they fight and the director and the fight choreographers will just take it from there. For us, because maybe it was a comedy movie. And also because um, there was a lot of dialogue, there was in, a lot of dialogue. And also there was a thought too, you know, with like an action movie, you kind of know what a fight will be with this. Our director, Richie Keen, I think we were all trying to figure out what is the fight funny? Is it brutal? Is it, you know, is there something clever about it? Uh, so I think that was part of why. It was so scripted out, you know, all of the beats. And it just became more and more uh, like there would be ideas like, oh, well, at this point, Charlie should do something clever. And so they're like, okay, well, what kind of clever thing? And then also certain, you know, ideas came. Oh, there should be something that's set up early in the movie, like that the floor is slippery and then that has a payoff in the fight and a bunch of that kind of stuff. Well, the fight itself was a payoff, so I guess it makes sense why it had to be more thought out because the whole movie Uh was culminating to this. Uh, Then at one point in one draft of the script, we wrote, you know, we were trying different versions, writing very quickly, and then we had, you know, and Charlie, you know, he's out of control and he punches uh, Ice Cube and Ice Cube goes down, and then we got an email back from Ice Cube that said, what? This wasn't (laughs) in the last draft. And we uh, we made some adjustments um, because, you know, and I think that was uh, that was also Ice Cube looking out for his character. And I think that was uh, kind of a mistake because you don't really believe that Charlie was going to be able to actually punch Ice Cube and knock him down, especially the way that we'd set up the characters. Uh, so that's why he knocks him out with a fire extinguisher, um, which was, I think, more believable way of how he could get the advantage. Uh, in the fight. So it was, uh, you know, writing that was a very specific and interesting kind of writing. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, what, kind of our topic today of professional wrestling and film, it was kind of a collision of both of my interests in those kind of things. That's what I was going to say, because yeah. in wrestling and pro wrestling is so much about is it's believable with the character do this, right. especially because this fight scene was more of a throwdown instead of like a carefully choreographed, like assassin fight scene. In- right. It shouldn't even look that choreographed. Right. And that's when I think you have to do it with more of the grounded in reality of pro wrestling kind of thing. What would the audience buy? It doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily have to work out like this would happen in real life. But would the audience believe this is what two characters would do? Yeah. And I think also, too, with, you know, Fistfight, we had the challenge of, uh, you know, UFC fighter, professional wrestling. People will watch a fight for a long time because that's what they've come to watch. In a movie, especially if there aren't going to be huge special effects, uh, you know, finding new ways to keep people interested in the fight, because we did kind of have an issue with, you know, the movie's called Fist Fight. The whole movie, very simplistically, is leading up to this fist fight. It has to deliver in some way, and finding ways that it would keep being interesting and keep compelling the audience uh was definitely a challenge so the idea that oh it'll start outside and then it will move locations inside the school and we'll start incorporating weapons and things like that we're just kind of all ways we're trying to escalate actually it reminded me and i don't know if you were thinking about Mm -hmm. it but it reminded me of the boiler room brawl with mankind yeah sure 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 Undertaker, where it like kept going different parts and then and then all of a sudden weapons were involved and it it was Mm -hmm. like the stages of hell yeah 
going mm-hmm. into it. No, I think definitely, uh, you know, consciously or subconsciously, all of that kind of stuff. And then a bunch record. of false finishes. Yes, a bunch of false finishes. <laughs> Which I really like because I don't see that that often in movies. And when they do do it, it's kind of like a horror movie. It's kind of done in right. a shitty way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, Die Hard uh, is probably the original false finish in oh, movies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where... You know, you think it's all over. He gets, he's embracing his wife. And then it's not Hans Gruber. It's another one of the guys just shows up and he's going to shoot him. And he, oh, and it's Carl Winslow from <laughs> Family Matters. Family Wait. Matters. Yeah, yeah. 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 Is that who it is? Yeah. 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 Carl yeah. Winslow. yeah and he, uh, he, he saves the day and shows that he can use a gun again. <laughs> that was like his one two punch because I don't know what order it was, but he did Crocodile Dundee. And then Die Hard, or mm-hmm. maybe it was the other way. Yeah. So it was like, whoa. Mm-hmm. And both times, he's like driving a car. One, he's a limo driver. And the other one, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's driving around in, in a cop car mm-hmm. as a cop. So when you wrote Fist Fight, yeah. did you have someone like Charlie Day in mind for? Yeah, I think that Charlie, we definitely, he was someone that we had kind of thought about. Obviously, you know, you kind of know that if you're writing a comedy movie in, you know, 2018, they're the kind of people who it'll be, whether that's Will Ferrell or Charlie Day. Uh, But definitely, you know, that was kind of the type uh, that we had kind of imagined. We were excited when Charlie had read the script and wanted to do it. Yeah, I noticed that when you mentioned the size difference between someone like Ice Cube and Charlie Day, Mm-hmm. And in a real fight, it wouldn't be that competitive, right. especially if you removed any skill component. Yes. So <laughs> I was wondering, did you always have in mind, because if you had, let's say, a Will Ferrell, yeah. then it might make it a little more challenging because he's taller and bigger. Yeah, you know, that was actually something that we talked about. There were all different versions that, that would like kind of, you know, change. There was one version where it was like, what if it was like a will ferrell but then what if the other guy was like stallone and it was like someone who was like very tough but older like and that would have you know that would have changed the movie a certain degree uh then like there was also like michael shannon if you know oh, who yeah. that actor yeah, 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 yeah. is like a guy who's not necessarily big but just has an intensity about him that you know and I, the ice cube was kind of a version of that so we definitely talked about different versions and i think that you know we did do another draft of the script once we had the actors cast and definitely kind of had to adjust it uh, towards that. And, you know, I think that that always would have been the case, but I think with, you know, Charlie, we kind of came to like, Oh, the story we were telling is like, of course you think that ice cube should just beat the shit out of him. And it's very obvious, you know, he seems, you know, that he, uh, that Charlie has nothing to lose at that point and is willing to just, you know, you know it is me it becomes like a rocky fight where he's willing to just keep on getting beat up and keep getting back up and i think that worked well uh you know there you know it is interesting to think about though the other versions and other castings and how that uh kind of you know one for half a second someone had the thought of uh ronda rousey being cast (laughs) as the other guy which is again a whole different thing if it's charlie and ronda rousey um which, you know, that I don't know how seriously that was ever really considered. But, uh, you know, there were all kind of different ideas at different stages. You know, because we're so used to action fight scenes to look so stylized and it looks so perfect. There's actual fight choreographers that they make fights look more like unprofessional like this. There's Hollywood people yeah. that aren't all about making it look all like the Matrix and stuff. Yeah, no, I think that uh, that definitely that was something that came 
you know, from the, and that could have been a choice. Like all the movie, it could have become like a stylized matrix fight. That could have been a different kind of comedy. Uh, I don't think that that would have been the right choice, but, um, but yeah, that is, that, that, that does become the question. You know, I think that uh, one maybe criticism that I have of maybe the Marvel movies is the fight sequences by and large are not particularly inspired or interesting. And they kind of, you know, you can, they kind of all blend together and it's kind of hard to tell, oh, is this one from this movie? There are a few exceptions, obviously. Um, but in general, um, you know, the fight sequences are not particularly unique to a specific movie. They kind of all kind of blend together. And there are a lot of just the way they do that is uh, they pre-visualization, um, which is basically with, you know, computers and they kind of like an enhanced storyboard version and all of these people, you know, animators and all that stuff, especially because they have so much special effects involved. Um, that's kind of all done by the special effects house, kind of an early version of, Hey, what do you think of this? And I think that because there's the same special effects house doing all of these, they kind of all start to blend together. What was good about fist fight was there weren't special effects. So it could be more of like the old fashioned, uh, stunt work. Actually to go off on, uh, those superhero movies, they're all varying levels of good or bad, but one thing I personally, as somebody who loves action movies, don't like about them is that no matter the origin story of the character, they all know how to fight. Yeah. So it's like, you know, Superman is fighting this other guy who's a trained soldier and they all know like the same techniques or, you right. know, Bruce Banner knows how to fight or whoever, you know, and it's like, wait, <laughs> Black Widow, that makes sense to that origin story. But Spider-Man, how does he know how to fight? You know, actually, the Marvel movies do a little bit better job, but the DC movies, they're just. I'd be interested in you guys who, uh, you know, are fans of combat sports. What do you do? You have criticisms? Do you watch fights in movies? Would you say differently? Oh, yeah. I mean, even like probably fist fight, right? You've yeah. talked about it a bazillion times. We're probably focusing more on the fight scene than usual because oh. that's probably the part of the movie that we like the most. Right. <laughs> no, well, we did have one interview when we were before the movie where the only questions the guy asked were about the fight okay. sequence, and we were like, okay, and you know, we the way it was like at the press junket, and you have a lot of interviews, and he all the questions were about the fight, and we we're like, huh, interesting. And then we uh, got in the elevator. And then we're like, oh, like, wh- who do you like work for? He's like, oh, I work for like an MMA magazine. <laughs> and, and he's like, I've never been to one of these film junkets, but someone like suggested like, hey, it has fight in the title. Do you want to cover it? So that was all of his questions were about the fight. Yeah, because secretly, even if I'm watching a drama and I'm really into it um, and, you know, I could love I mean, I love movies, period. I've watched avant garde movies to, you know, old Swedish movies or some well stuff. But. There's a part of me that always wishes, damn, I wish they could just fit in a fight scene somewhere in here. (laughs) I would never be like, watch some movie and be like, that fight scene was inappropriate. They shouldn't have put in there. So I guess, yeah. And maybe it's because I grew up watching pro wrestling where everything somehow either resolved with a fight or there was somehow a fight mixed in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. So the original title was called Teacher Fight. Uh, actually it was not, but a lot of people think that, and it's kind of like a little bit of a Mandela effect. Oh, uh, you started that. You started that conspiracy on Twitter. Uh, which, because the early first teaser for the movie has the phrase teacher fight in it like seven times. And so I think that kind of set it up 
to a lot of people thought that would be the title and if that was going to be the first trailer it maybe should have been the title um but uh it was always called fist fight but definitely um that was like an inception it was like an inception thing uh because in within the movie the kind of like the thing that the kids you know are talking about and then the hashtag when they're like you know put it on facebook and twitter is teacher fight so it feels like the movie should be called teacher fight if that's going to be the thing were you on the set a lot uh i was on the set some i was actually on set for when they were doing the fight uh scene um but not for the whole time it shot in Atlanta. one question i have is does charlie day lose his voice when he's acting or no <laughs> can he just do that all day i i did not see him lose his voice i think that's kind of how he talks wow <laughs> yeah because i'm a big fan of not just it's always sunny but yeah. even his feature film work whether mm-hmm. it's horrible bosses one and two yeah. Pacific Rim, both one sure. and two. So Fist Fight was an interesting development because I've seen him play a dental hygienist assistant uh-huh. to a scientist to uh-huh. a teacher. Mm-hmm. He's essentially the same guy in all yes. movies. <laughs> it's like, this is Charlie Day as a scientist. This yes. is Charlie Day as a dental assistant. This mm-hmm. is him as a teacher. It's like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Nothing has really changed except for improved literacy throughout. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that... Uh... I think there's a certain talent and that's, you know, movie stars in general, you know, we really, you know, you think of like movie stars like Daniel Day Lewis, that's not what most movie stars are like, where they completely transform. What we like in movie stars is just they're themselves and you just adjust it a few degrees. Like Tom Hanks is basically Tom Hanks in every movie, but he's... Well, that's why you're watching it. Right. That's why you're watching it. Because if... The movie star really transforms. I know some people like actors like that, um, but then it's kind of like, well, you know, why? You you know, I mean, people would make make fun of this with Hollywood too all the time when, you know, uh, there's like a really like ugly person and they cast like a beautiful woman to play like Charlize Theron. She transformed, you know, for the movie Monster. I think was the name of it, and she, she looks nothing like Charlize Theron, which it's impressive, but then it's kind of like, well. Like, why did it need to be her if she's going to be completely different? So that's kind of an interesting thing uh, that people like. But then also it feels like you didn't do anything. You didn't act. Uh, But yet people also like that and they will feel disappointed if it's not. But for comedy, don't you see that a little bit more just because even if they're playing a different character, the way they deliver their comedic beats. Sure. they, They maintain that. They know how to do their comedy like that. So it seems more more like that just because of their comedic stylings right well right yeah no i mean if you think back to early film like you know charlie chaplin and you know buster keaton those characters were very much the same like you know you can say like will ferrell's the same in every movie but like charlie chaplin was really the same in every movie um and yeah there is something you know it's interesting um people on the one hand like you know, someone like uh, Adam Sandler, people criticize him because they're like, he's like doing the same thing he's done for like 20 years and it's so lazy and it sucks. But then like Jim Carrey, when he like, you know, does really weird stuff and he like completely leaves comedy, like this guy was supposed to be funny. What happened to that? So people are kind of never happy. And it's like, I, you know, it's really impressive an actor, especially in comedy, who's able to, you know, have longevity um and also still you know kind of be themselves because it's a it's a tough thing so let's get to the important stuff because fist fight is only so important but you did a movie with roddy piper and that's way (laughs) more important 
and I didn't even know that. Yeah, it was a sh- it was a short, not a full movie. Yeah, were you acting in it or I what was, is that? Yeah, so it was uh, for Funny or Die. Okay, uh, it was like a three minute uh, sketch. Um, but my friend who directed it, uh, Justin Donaldson, knew that I was a fan of professional wrestling. He's like, "Hey, Rowdy Rowdy Piper is going to be, you know, in this short that I did. Do you want to come and like essentially be an extra?" Um, but you'll get to meet him, and uh, it was it was a fun uh, thrill. And how was he to? He was work great. With- he was, uh, you know, I think it was pretty near, you know, the end of his well life, I guess. Um, but he was uh, he was enjoying it a good sense of humor. He kind of mellowed. He uh, was already starting to do stand up. He at was that starting point. to do stand up, and this was part of that, just you know, doing comedy. And yeah, he was, you know, he was great. I have a theory about his career. So actually, he probably is my favorite pro wrestler of all time, and I've oh, met him. I've met him because you actually run into him. I grew up partially in Portland, mm-hmm. so just being around Portland, you actually run into Piper every once in a while because he lives there. No, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so he comes out. I mean, he's all over the place, and he comes down here a lot. But his home is in Portland, and he even has like a body shop and whatever. So it's not a big deal to run into him. So every time, uh, you know, people run into him, or when I've run into him, he was super nice. But with that said, you have somebody like Andy Kaufman who kind of like emulated a lot of stuff Roddy Piper did to great acclaim, right? Sure. But Piper, he was this bigger than life character in pro wrestling. But then whenever he tried acting, he didn't act like the same comedic, funny Piper. He was such a straight man. And it's just like, what the fuck? Like you compare They Live, right? Yeah. John Carpenter and the way he played him versus you know, action heroes like uh, in other John Carpenter movies like Big Trouble in Little China with uh, Kurt Russell. And it's essentially Kurt Russell kind of being a Roddy Piper-ish guy. Yet when Roddy Piper is an actor, he plays this like straight stone-faced deadpan character. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough it's a tough thing that wrestlers have had a tough time, I guess, until recently uh, transitioning from wrestling to movies. Um, and, you know, The Rock has kind of, you know, broke ground and has managed to find that. And John Cena maybe potentially is going to have similar success. But it's kind of funny because it seems like it's very similar skills. But on the other hand, uh, it's very different. But, you know, wrestling is interesting because it's kind of in between. You know, it's like you guys would know, too, like, you know, UFC, like when wrestlers like CM Punk try to go that way, not acting when they try and go to uh, fighting. That doesn't always work out. Yeah, it's Uh, like all the pieces are there. Right. All the pieces are there. It seems like it should work. um, And yet they kind of struggle to do acting and they struggle if they try and, you know, go to, you know, legitimate fighting. That's actually a good parallel because Piper was like the most comedic. And best timing in his jokes kind of pro wrestler. But then when he went to movies, it just didn't cross over. And then CM Punk was a wrestler who was known for having like the most kind of legitimate looking pro wrestling matches. It looked very authentic. And then when he tried to carry it over, it just didn't. Now it looked like pro wrestling. It looked like bad pro wrestling. It just looked like he didn't know how to do anything. Right. And it's interesting. You know, I was reading about Ronda Rousey when she was coming in to wrestling. They had the issue with her that. You know, she knew how to throw, like, you know, how to fight real, but it didn't look good because it didn't look like professional wrestling because you don't want to, you don't want to telegraph what you're going to do in real fighting because then it could be, you know, reversed or stopped. Uh, But in wrestling, you need to kind of, you know, you need to wind up, you need to show what you're going to do. 
And so it's interesting that these things seem like they should be very easy to transfer between, but they don't always. Yeah, she's gotten better. But I remember I was watching the footage of her, you know, coming out of her training footage and her earlier stuff. And she looks so stiff. But on pro wrestling, stiffness, that look awkward look just does not look good or it makes it look more fake. And that's the weird thing is in fighting, if you're stiff, that's fine. But in pro wrestling, when you're stiff, it looks more fake. Right. It's very weird uh, that the things that and it's kind of, you know, the fake becomes what feels real. You know, there's I, uh, I think I read or listened to on a podcast uh, that there became an issue in like sports video games that then real sports didn't sound like people think they should sound because in sports video games, they enhance all of the sounds of sports, uh, you know, like, you know, the crowd and the, all the, that kind of stuff. So then they started enhancing real sports to sound more like video games uh, because again, like people expect the real thing to be more like the fake thing. It's a tricky thing. There's a great meme about that. There's so much I learned from memes yes, on, on top sure. of anime and things like that and pro wrestling, of course. But it was about, do you know John Baudrillard? No, I don't believe so. He so. wrote this book called Simulacra and Simulations, which was talked about in The Matrix, which a lot of people say Matrix was inspired by it, where it's about the simulated reality looks more real to people than reality. Yes. So there was this meme that had a picture of a real rat. And it had an Instagram and it had zero followers and nobody liked it. And then Mickey Mouse right next to it and it had a bunch of followers and everybody liked it. And it was basically saying Mickey Mouse is also a rat or a mouse or whatever. But to us, Mickey Mouse is more real than this rat. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same thing as when we watch a fight in movies or pro wrestling or video games. It has to live up to our expectations, not live up to reality. Right. And that, you know, in... Getting to bring it back to UFC, like Dana White, like has been making UFC more like professional wrestling. Yeah, because and I don't know, I guess, but maybe that's kind of why, you know, because is that what people expect or is that what people want? I don't know what. Like, why do you think that has been story? Story because it's easier to control a narrative if you have a story to tell as opposed to just competitive matchups. You look at golf, you look at tennis, you look at certain sports where. It's purely by winner versus loser. Unless it's a tournament format, it's hard to build interest. It's just player A versus player B. Player A advances to face player C. It's not that interesting. But if you say so-and-so has bad blood, they used to be teammates and now they're fighting. It's like, I want to see this. It's just like fist fight. It's, yeah. hey, you ratted me out to right. the principal. <laughs> yeah. It's like three o'clock high. Like, right, I'll sure. see you after school. Mm -hmm. So... Or fist fight. It's like fist fight, not three o'clock. <laughs> no, 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 he said both. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things I wanted to make sure to circle back when you mentioned that Roddy Piper clip, was it the funny or die one where he's fighting childhood? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obesity, diabetes. Uh -huh. Yeah, so I'm one of the people chasing after him at the end. That was a classic one. Yeah. So was he landing his comedic beats there? Yeah, he was, you know, it was, it was pretty short, but, uh, you know, he was a pro. I mean, definitely. Later on, as he started doing the stand-up comedy, he started getting the comedy more, it seemed like. Well, that, I think, was very comfortable. That was, you know, uh, and he was, you know, the director knew how to use him well. And it was, you know, it was very... Uh... It reminded me of uh, Russell Crowe's character in South Park, when uh -huh. at the end, he wants to fight childhood cancer. Yeah. So he starts beating up kids right. with cancer. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Actually, 
not just going into movies, but a lot of pro wrestlers now, have you noticed they're also going into stand-up? Like yeah. Bob Van Dam and Mick Foley and Piper was doing it. and Dolph Ziggler. Yeah. Uh-huh. What is up with that? Because you have your finger in the comedic I think too. that uh, I think that, you know, it's again, I think that first of all, people always want to do or are interested in what they're not doing. Mm. Um, and so I think that's always part of the appeal. And then again, I think it seems like, hey, I go in front of an audience of, you know, thousands of people and I make them laugh. And why can't I just become a stand up comedian? Um, but again, it's that same thing where it's not always so easy to do it. I mean, I think that that's always something stand up. It's always very interesting. People, you know, can like give a toast at a wedding and everyone laughs. And then people will go, oh, that guy should do stand up. And they go to a stand up club and try to do it and nothing. You know, these things seem so similar, but they're actually pretty different. It's like you mentioned with pieces. All the yeah. pieces are All the there. Pieces the are microphone there. is there. Right. The people are there. Right. It's just, I've done this before. And then you go there. It's like, it's yeah. a totally different animal. Right. It's like exactly. ping pong and tennis. Right. Well, it's a paddle. There's a right. net. It's one other one opponent. The other. I could do this. Yeah, but it's, you know, you're lost. My friend said, because he takes improv classes and he ran into John Morrison there. Well, that's a different kind of comedy, but. I could see improv helping more, though. Or there, yeah. Well, a they, better... you know, it's interesting. Professional wrestling—they used to basically be improvised the promos and the skits. You know, they would have the rough outline. It was kind of like you guys know how they shoot the show curb your enthusiasm, where they have an outline, they know what you have to say, but they would improvise it. Now WWE has become much more scripted, uh, and people kind of maybe complain about that um, and say that it's. But they're bringing worse. guys like you guys, right? Like script writers screenwriters uh, well, they don't, writers. you know yeah or also just like local people that they find um so yeah they have a whole you know staff of people who live you know in connecticut writing the scripts and all that kind of stuff um whereas you know kind of more independent wrestling or uh new japan pro wrestling they i think have a little bit more of that old model of you have the rough direction but you can improvise so what is like the uh movie writing business like for you like as a writer how do you make a living because it's not like you work for a company and you get paid by the hour or whatever you're kind of like a drug dealer you only get paid when you're selling stuff right <laughs> it's hard out there on the street it, it is hard out there uh yeah i mean you get paid when you're writing you don't ha you don't only get paid when you have something that gets made that would i think make it pretty unsustainable uh but yeah you get you know paid for jobs so you know, that could be an original script that you just write independently that someone buys. It could be an original idea that you pitch. That was Fistfight. We pitched that uh, before we written the script. It could be something like, okay, we have this property or this toy or this old movie that we want to remake. Do you have any ideas for how we would do that? And then you come in and you say what your idea is. And they say, okay, we like that idea. And then you write that. Um, but the real money comes in if it starts getting made, right? Yeah, you, you get, get paid more, something. You, you get front. more. You get paid more money if it gets made, and then if it's a big hit, you get even more. But do you think that's a fair system, or I think that it relatively uh, is fair. I think it makes sense that you should be rewarded more if you have a movie that gets made, and you should be rewarded even more than that if it's successful. It's interesting uh, in animation you don't get paid more real well you do a little bit based on how the movie does uh, but they don't have residuals in the same way uh so i met uh the woman who wrote uh, beauty and the beast who 
has not made any money off of the re- you know the remake or the Broadway show or any of those kind of things is pretty remarkable. But you know, I think like any field that there's a lot of work uh, that you have to do to get the job um, before you get paid, which is you know that part's very bad, and they're you know trying to deal with all of that. But that's kind of the reality of all of that. So it's interesting. Sam mentioned you have three projects in the works: the Jetsons, Sonic, and Wedding Crashes Two. Is well, that a lot correct? of a lot of those are things like the Jetsons. I wrote a draft of like five years ago, right? And I was you know, hired. Action? I was it was a live action. I was hired by Warner Brothers. It's very funny that uh, that project. You know, when I uh, when I got hired for that, the executive looked at me and said, "Okay, just so you know, like there have been houses built." in los angeles based on this script and the cover page they have to for you know writers guild purposes keep every name of everyone who's ever worked on the script and it had 17 names and it was and it was oscar winners it was people who had written you know number one kids movies they'd basically gone in all directions and they said okay here's a script throw it out we don't even want you to read it it's so amazing after all that time all that money and you know it was basically start from scratch so that you know and then with you know a script you write the script and who knows what will happen uh you know at that time it uh, we wrote the script the studio executive liked it he sent it to a director then actually kanye west uh called because he was very interested in the jetsons and he wanted to be involved (laughs) and that ended up he ended up taking over and being in charge of the Jetsons movie for a little while. Oh, no. uh, So that was the end of our script, because sometimes something random and crazy like that will happen. Kanye's just ruining everything, yeah. man. Um, then Sonic the Hedgehog. That was a script that uh, we were the first... My writing partner, Van Robichaux, who I work with, we were the first writers on that. We, you know... Uh, that was we, also a long time ago, right? Or several years that ago? That was like three years ago. Uh, we flew to Japan. We had to pitch our idea for the movie. To Is this live Sega. action too? or It's like a CGI character. Okay. We had to pitch our version of the movie to the Sega Board of Directors, which was a really wild experience. Uh, we had you know, we had a translator and all of that kind of thing. Uh, we wrote the script. We were writing it for Sony. Then after we wrote the script, there were kind of big, you know, issues with like Sony and Sega and then the producer um originally they didn't agree about the direction of the movie so the movie moved over to paramount it attached a director the director had his own writers that he wanted to work with and now the movie will come out and who knows how close it'll be to the version that i wrote and that'll kind of you know that's kind of the interesting thing of being a writer you kind of live in this kind of you know it could happen uh who knows where you know you'll see all the time movies that have seven writers on it and you know that might you know with sonic who knows how that'll all uh that'll all pan out so writing's really about like long-term planning right you're writing something now that may get made if you're lucky years from now or you might get paid on it years from now so you got to do something now to reap the rewards way later yeah i mean i think that you have to think of for me at least i think you have to think of you're getting paid for the things that you're writing now and just like what is what's in your contract guaranteed that's what you should think of as the only thing that you're getting and anything else that happens should just be icing on the cake what happened with wedding crashers how did that happen so wedding crashers we wrote the script got was uh, that also several years ago that was that was more recent that was in the last year or so uh we wrote the script good reactions from everybody um and we'll kind of see what happens 
you guys didn't put it upon yourselves to write it, right? Somebody no, no, no. So they, uh, so the studio, the new line that made it, they, uh, they also made our movie Fist Fight, and the executive called us and said, "Hey, we're thinking of doing a sequel to Wedding Crashers. Do you have any ideas?" Also, just so you know, we're tell, you know asking a bunch of other writers if they have any ideas, uh, and then we came up with our idea of what it would be, and we came in and we pitched it, and they said, "We like that. Write that script." You probably know better than anybody, but. There's way more people wanting to be movie writers than there are actual movie writers, right? So if Paul and I wanted to get into the movie biz, how do you get in there? How do we get from this, from zero? Because I'm sure most people, if they're listening, they're not an actual writer who's getting paid yet. They're trying to get in. Sure. Uh, well, for if it's specifically writing, then this is going to seem very obvious. But you have to write a script, and that uh, like that, a whole thing. Don't try to get paid for just coming yeah, up with. No, outline. you have to write the whole script. If you've never written a movie script. You have to write a full movie script, and it's amazing how many people want to be movie writers, and you know will say that that's what they want to do, and have not written a full script. And to be fair, it's hard to uh, write a full script, and also halfway through, you're gonna be like, this is stupid, I should not do it. Uh, and then once you write the script, then you have to get attention. And that's also very hard. You've probably also read a lot of scripts, and you've written a lot of scripts. What we see in the screen as us as consumers, we'll talk shit about it. We're like, oh, this movie was blah, 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 blah. But that's really the cream of the crop, right? Most of the stuff out there is pretty bad. Well, yes. And but I think it's important to know that, you know, the process of making a movie makes movies worse. Okay. And Let's that, get into that. that, you know, the scripts, like, you know, you can read on the script, it makes sense. But then if you get an actor who can't say the lines right, then you got an issue. Or even just something that not have anything to do with the actors or anything like that. Like, it's supposed to be a sunny day, but it's pouring raining. So now you have to switch the side scene to being inside. And it doesn't really make sense that it's inside. So then you're frantically changing the script. And then when you did that, like, that messed up something for later in the movie. And all of a sudden, now the movie doesn't make any sense. And you're just trying to make the movie make sense. And now it's not funny or interesting or clever or anything like that because you've just gotten so off the rails. So the process of making movies makes them worse so i think a lot of people see bad movies that get made and say oh i just have to write a script better than that and people will hire me uh which is i i haven't coined this term but uh shit plus one <laughs> like all <laughs> movies are shit if i'm just a little better than that then i'll be great but that's not how i would recommend approaching it's more complicated it. than that it's more complicated than that i think that you should aspire to you know, shit plus something. ten, maybe. Yeah, or or maybe even what's a great movie, and let me try to write the best movie, and then you know, uh, if it's a little bit worse than that, that'll be uh, okay. So yeah, I think that um, I think that you would uh, you should assume that that it's not. I wouldn't take finished, completed, bad movies as a sign of oh, it's you know that's how easy it is just to be better than that. Well. With the democratizing of of movie information because of Deadline and because of TMZ and all these websites and whatever, now regular moviegoers kind of feel like they're insiders. So they think they know what makes movies bad, which is everybody, including myself, probably Paul, the boogeyman that we always hear is, it's the studio execs. 
they come in and give their bad notes, and that's why the movie gets bad. Are they really the boogeyman, or is well, there other know, shit going really on? It's interesting, because you'll look at it, and I, I don't want to name names, but there are a lot of people who are, you know, talented filmmakers, talented writers, and then, you know, they've done some really good movies within the studio system, and then all of a sudden, they'll have so much creative power that they can do completely their own thing, and no one's going to interfere. And a lot of times, that thing is worse. <laughs> and, you know, whether, you know, the oftentimes studio notes maybe feel arbitrary or about, you know, another project, and not, you know, it's about other things. But I think the process of having to defend what you wrote and also, you know, just when you are challenged in any way with what you do, I think is good. The exception probably is people who their whole careers have been kind of completely independent. People like the Coen brothers or Quentin Tarantino who just have paved their own way from the beginning because that's kind of how they work. I think you run into problems when someone, you know, the way they got their start was working within the system. And then all of a sudden they think they're a big shot and they can work with, and they're going to try and do something outside of the system. And then a lot of times it doesn't really work so well. That sounds very much like a, I know you don't want to name names, but from your description, sounds like Zack Snyder. <laughs> that's he started off very well with, yeah. I love the Dawn of the Dead movie, uh-huh. and then he did 300. Yeah. I don't know if he did Watchmen right after, mm-hmm. but after Watchmen, he did Sucker Punch, yes. which was essentially a music video. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then I don't know if it's just because the more power he got, the more untethered he became. Right. No, I think that is, yeah, I think that a lot of times too. And also someone like uh, Zack Snyder, um, I think definitely like I I have a lot of respect for him because I think he's like, you know, so talented visually uh, and he, you know, has like definite skills. But I think that, you know, there are certain things like storytelling and scripting that to him, you know, maybe doesn't seem that important, but you know, it's a weakness for him. It's not, or even rather, it's not his strength. It's not what he prioritizes. And earlier on, there were probably more voices saying, hey, that's great. All, you know, all the visuals you have, that's all good. But we just got to work on some of the story stuff. And, you know, I think it's like better to have, you know, you know, to be challenged in some kind of ways. In the biz, We'd call him a spot monkey, right? <laughs> He's just going for all the high spots, in, in but there's wrestling. like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah that's a, yeah, that's a good, uh, yeah, term in, yeah, in wrestling, like matches where people are, you know, jumping from ladders and all of that kind of thing, but you kind of lose track of what's happening. And the old time, you know, wrestlers were all about storytelling, or like they don't like that, right? Yeah, and then the all time wrestlers, you know, would prefer if someone's just punching someone's elbow <laughs> the whole time, which is obviously you got to work the arm. Right, you got to work work a body part, is what they say, which is also can be boring and tedious in its own right. And obviously, you know, in in wrestling right now, that's happening is there's kind of a whole debate between the old timers and the new kids, and you know, I think that uh, you know both are both are kind of wrong. You know, no one really wants to watch a match where it's just working, you know, one body part for the entire time. You don't appreciate good scientific wrestling. Right, exactly. But um, if, you know, and someone like uh, Kenny Omega uh, manages to combine the both where he does, you know, great storytelling in his matches, but also like incredible spots and that kind of thing as well. Let's plug that. If you don't know who we're talking about or you don't even like pro wrestling, just go on YouTube and look up Kenny Omega 
or Kenny Omega versus Okada. Yeah, I think that, you know, Kenny Omega Okada is probably one of the best, you know, feuds in modern professional or maybe professional wrestling ever. Uh, and specifically their uh, their last uh, match at Dominion is, you know, a masterwork of storytelling of any art or form. Regardless of movies, comic books, novels. Exactly. You know, what's funny is I got back into New Japan recently. So I thought they disappeared. I thought they had died. And I was just paying attention to what was happening domestically or indies. And then I think I was talking to some of my friends, maybe even including you, mm-hmm. was telling me about what was happening over there. So I was looking stuff up and I will. This is a true story. I'm like watching their feud and the final match where Kenny Omega beat Okada. And my wife walked in and I was like tearing up. Yeah. I was so moved by the mm-hmm. match. And she's like, why are you crying over a pro wrestling match? I'm like, you don't understand. I just saw a masterpiece. Yes. That one, it was really amazing. And it does, it, you know, it combines a lot of, you know, traditional uh, wrestling storytelling devices. And then also a lot of our notions and ideas about storytelling from other art forms uh, something, you know, I heard an interview with uh, Kenny Omega afterwards. Something interesting that he did is he, you know, he set up a table near the end of the match. And he did it because he was like, oh, I want to surprise the audience with the finish. And he knows. And, you know, because the audience has been trained almost like a Chekhov's gun, which is like the idea from theater that Chekhov came up with the idea of you introducing a gun in the first act, it better go off in the third act. So there's this idea that if you set something up, it's going to be paid off. So he, Kenny sets up the table and the audience kind of knows like, okay, something's going to happen with the table. And then all of a sudden Kenny wins and it's shocking and it's surprising because the table's still there. And he never, no one ever went through the table at the end of the match, which you were kind of expecting. Like it won't be over until even though you're not conscious about that. It's like, you know, and that was just like one of the many small, you know, things. There are also kind of, something uh like the false finish is like a part of a wrestling structure and uh, going into that match no one had ever uh kicked out of his finisher which was the one-winged angel and there was kind of a thought like okay and you start because everyone in all stories you start finishing the story yourself even you know even if you're not conscious of it you're like watching something you know how it's going to finish so kenny omega had never beat well he'd beaten okada but he never beat him for the championship and you're thinking, okay, how are they going to end this match? And you're like, probably, you know, one thing that would make sense is that, uh, you know, Okada will be the first one to kick out of the one wing angel. Never happened before. It'll be shocking. He'll kick out of it. And then Kenny will beat him. Um, but they keep on going to one wing angels. And then he keeps on not hitting it. And you keep on being like, well, we got to have that. And then he does hit the one wing angel and he does get the pin. And he doesn't kick out of it. And again, it's just all of these kind of notions of how you think things are going to go and how you know that can be subverted. What else is amazing is, and particularly in wrestlers from America going to Japan, they're improvising with somebody else from another country and you don't even speak the same language. Well, Kenny actually does speak fluent. Uh, it, is, yeah. it is fluent. But, um, but yes, yeah, so there are plenty of examples of uh american or british wrestlers who don't speak the language of their opponents and they could still have an intricate match i yes. could see how you could have more of a throw down just punch 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 yeah. kind of a match mm-hmm. like brock lesnar went to japan and did stuff yeah. too mm-hmm. actually he was like the guy who almost killed new japan pro wrestling right <laughs> oh, yeah yeah i'm not sure i don't know but but he didn't speak the language so he had more of these squash matches but you know some of these other guys who were coming in like aj styles to whoever and they're having 
so that's the other amazing thing that they both understand all the rules of pro wrestling and all the wrestling logic that it's like this amazing fast paced performance art. Yeah. But I think that, you know, it's interesting what, you know, people can get tired of movies and even professional wrestling when they start to feel too scripted and when you start to know exactly how it's going to go. And this is why I think people prefer sometimes prefer combat sports or sports in general because people do crave story and drama but when it feels too artificial it feels like who cares so like you know it's so exciting when um you know when a baseball like world series goes to game seven and it's really close but if every one is to (laughs) game seven then it feels like uh, who cares at a certain point so i think that that's and you know i think that's what's when I did watch, you know, some UFC, that was what was exciting to me is like, oh, like the big match, like it can be over in like 10 seconds or it can be, you know, long and drawn out and it can go in any direction. Um, and I think that's something that you're kind of always striving for in fiction or in uh, scripted combat is how do you have the randomness and spontaneity of the real thing? Because I think that gets uh, more exciting. Back in the day, Goldberg was famous for having that streak where no one could beat him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was a whole thing, which, you know, on the one hand, it's great because it's like, oh, my God, it's amazing. No one can beat him and you protect that. But then at a certain point, you know, you kind of it runs out of steam because if no one can beat him, then what, you know, it's a very simplistic. It's like a compelling story, but it's also a very simple story. Right. The problem with that also is that when you watch a streak, because you're so used to how it used to work, I just assumed he was also a really, really fantastic wrestler because the way he was beating people. But then the joke's on me because when he actually has to wrestle a longer match, you're like, oh, no, he's awful. And it wasn't like they were saving that really good match for us later on. It was more like, oh, they were trying to script this around his weakness that he can't wrestle. Did you see the match when he came back and he wrestled uh, Brock Lesnar like in, a couple of years ago at WrestleMania? Yeah, I was surprised that, and I was talking to somebody about that recently where I feel like the reintroduction of Goldberg was the reintroduction of squash matches at like the big level. Because modern era, they kind of got rid of the squash matches. They even got rid of those jobbers or, uh, you know, what do they call them? Like enhancement Yeah, enhancement talent. talent. Yeah. yeah. But now... After that match, you're seeing more squash matches, especially with Brock. So I don't even know if I like that they did that. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, you know, squash matches just basically the idea. One guy just squashes and beats the other guy really quickly. Is there a place for that in pro wrestling? I mean, I don't line? know. I mean, I do think there is something if every match it becomes a little silly. Like if every match is 25 minutes long and every match is a false finish and every match, you know, like is, uh, they call it 50, 50 booking. Like everyone like looks like they're basically just as good as everyone else. That becomes boring. And also it's not that believable. Like if, you know, if Brock Lesnar, like if, you know, someone who's like, you know, just called up like to WWE can like have a 25 minute match with him. Well, then he's not that good. So there is something to, you know, varying these kind of things. But it also, and especially because it's scripted, it feels like a cheat. You know, in UFC, if the match is only 15 seconds long because a guy, like, you know, just knocked him out, you're like, well, that's what happened. 
But in wrestling, you know that they wrote it that way. So it feels more unsatisfying. I guess it could sometimes feel unsatisfying in UFC if you're really excited for a big match and it ends quickly. But there's also something kind of thrilling and exciting about that. Uh, whereas in wrestling, it doesn't feel that thrilling and exciting because it's just like, well, you guys just decided that to happen. So I don't know. It's tricky. So going back to me and Paul as this imaginary writing duo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We write the script. Uh-huh. Is the difference between like, because you, you're not from LA, right? No. So you did that whole story. You came out here and then you became a writer and blah, blah, blah. Is the difference because these other writers, they don't watch pro wrestling, so they don't know how to write something. <laughs> right, yeah, and then know, you yeah. do, was that the X factor or, or, okay, so now you got people who wrote scripts. How do how did you kind of manage to rise up and start getting paid? So then you have to do the very uncomfortable thing of trying to get people to read your script, uh, which is... People are very resistant to that, people right? People are resistant to it. It's also every person you give the script to, because most likely you don't know somebody who's like the head of a studio who can buy the script. So really what you're asking for is not only for someone to read the script, but for them to read it and pass it on to somebody else. And so then the awkward position that you're in of asking someone a favor in a best case scenario, they're going to be in that awkward position of, you know, passing it on to somebody else and trying to get it in the right hands of someone who will make uh, the movie or get you some attention so you have to you have to let people read your script that's the other second part and you have to ask them to pass it on to people and all that kind of thing and that can be you know awkward and also you kind of have to know at a certain point like is this the one to push or is this not good enough yet and it's easier if you live in los angeles you will just kind of by being around los angeles likely meet some people who are peripherally involved in the movie business in some way. Because you took also classes. In yeah, improv. I took classes at uh, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Does that also help because you're kind of in this alma mater of people who have already graduated and been successful? A little bit. It didn't really help directly, but it just is a little bit of being around people. So you just kind of like through osmosis kind of learn or confidence, like, at least. Yeah, confidence and just seeing other people like, oh, they can do it. Uh, but it's not an automatic. You still have to hustle no, 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 and get not. people to read it. Uh, and then people will read it. And then, you know, then the paths can be divergent. Um, but then maybe you would end up with an agent or a manager. And then you start going on meetings. And then hopefully you sell a script or you get a job. And then you're, then you're in it. But at the beginning, it's kind of like you still have to kind of work. I would say you still have to work even, you know, even when you have a movies made, I was having coffee as I do from uh, time to time with people who like move out to Los Angeles and I was this 22 year old actor and he's like, okay, well, you're, you know, you're completely set. Like, you know, you can just like work forever. Like not how it works. You know, well, the stereotype is if you get a movie made and now you have 10 million in the bank is what we're thinking. That's not the case. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and, you know, people will. You know, if I want to have a meeting with the producer or studio executive, I can probably have that meeting quicker than most people. But it's still no guarantee. Uh, so a lot of working writers are still kind of working a day job, too. That's common is what you're saying. Uh, that's that is true. But also even I'm just saying that even working writers, they still have to like be hustling. Oh, okay, uh, okay. they still you know, it's not like once you are a working writer, you don't go to like you don't knock on the door at Warner Brothers and say, what do you have for me this week? So even if you've graduated from the day job. Right. And you're a full time writer, 
that kind of nine to five hustle of trying to get right trying to made. find projects or find yes that's not over that's not over i thought that's what the agent does you would think so <laughs> but but uh that's not that's not the case i was at some restaurant and the night before i saw some kind of mtv thing and i saw this comedian on there and then the next day this person was my server and that's when I realized, oh, okay, <laughs> that could happen. You're still serving even though you've had a comedy thing. It's interesting. It reminds me a lot of the fighting system and how they'll come up from the amateur ranks. So you can move out from a small town to how a big city. Yeah, how does it work? I actually don't know anything about this. So this might be a good yeah. cross-comparison note. So if I'm a fighter from a small town in Montana... And I think that I have potential, whether I have a quick right hand or I'm a great wrestler. I fly out to a city that has a big fight camp. You're training along veterans of the sport who have been around for a long time. They're in the UFC. And if you're lucky enough, there might be champions or ex-champions there. And you have head coaches who have cornered fighters in the championship fights as well as big fights throughout their careers. So people might think, oh, wow, you're at so-and-so. You're at Kings. You're at Jackson's. You're at sarah longo and you made it yeah you made it you're a pro fighter and then like you said once you become a full-time writer you might be oh you're in the ufc you made it it's like it doesn't work that way because now i still have to hustle to make sure i get the fight sometimes they offer me a matchup i'm like that's terrible i can't take that or hey i'm injured i'm recuperating and in between fights if you are injured and that's your livelihood you and only at, get paid at ufc fight. do you only get paid for your fights like, do you not get, do you get like paid for like, you're in the UFC, you get like a salary now or how does that? No, no. And that's one of the big things that people are talking about is unionizing. So there might be some kind of salary. Actually, there's several versions of this being full employees or having a fighters association where you're not a full employee, but you have some kind of bigger body that'll do a lot of negotiations on your behalf. And so just from actually watching UFC and them kind of this emergent sport coming up you're seeing all the things that comes up with sports and one of the things that comes up is are the athletes getting treated appropriately and so from there kind of watching the ideas of union form but union i didn't realize was such a spectrum from union to associations to just kind of these loose-knit groups that can kind of do some bargaining for you and and so forth so we're seeing all that happening right now it's also tough i imagine you know, unions, the stereotype is like, you know, the trucker who's been in the union for 30 years with, you know, what's the lifetime of a UFC fighter? And if the union is made up of only like people who are like fighting, like, you know, that institutional memory or like, you know, of being in the union, you know, it's, you know, it's hard to have a union if the membership is turning over every 10 years. Yeah, I don't know if the union thing would work because of what you're saying. But also, if you're an employee and fully unionized in that way, they can also tell you this is who you're fighting. You don't have that ability to kind of... The union could. Or the company could, is what I'm saying. You're fighting this guy versus kind of like... Because like if you're a basketball player, you're playing this team and that's it. And you just yeah. kind of have to listen. And whereas, if you get traded, you have to go. Yeah. yeah. Whereas in UFC, because it's a pay-per-view model and you have a lot more free agency in that way to pick and choose when you fight who you fight mm -hmm. and also you have injuries so you can't always fight all the time they need a little bit more leeway also so i think maybe an association or something like and what that is, how do you become a ufc fighter and what does that like distinction mean 
Well, right now, the easiest way to do UFC seems to be be a pro wrestler. <laughs> yeah, and sure. then that seems to be the <laughs> easiest way. But 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 outside of that, how do you like join the UFC? If you're like you're doing these like amateur, you're doing these fight camps, and a recruiter. No, they will wouldn't. See you? They wouldn't ever take an amateur working their way up. No. So ideally, what happens is you start at the amateur level. Usually, by state, California has a very well put in system in place for the amateurs to come up. And then in the amateurs, you get used to the rounds, and a lot of them you don't start off with full kicks. You you have shin guards, so that way you get to kind of build up a resistance to it. When you think that you are good enough to turn pro, that's when you turn pro. And once you turn pro, you get paid to fight. There's a lot of shady organizations out there, and they usually take place in Indian reservations because there's no athletic commission Got to kind of oversee it. And so basically, the way is like you have to do these sketchy professional fights that are kind of sketchy and weird, is like kind of the way. Actually, it's kind of a one for one parallel to pro wrestling. It's kind of like those sketchy indie shows. Actually, a lot of the venues that do pro wrestling indie shows are also the venues that do MMA shows. So they actually have a lot of overlap in booking and venues and so forth. And the way that a venue or a promotion would get paid is one for one the same as an indie show. The difference is that uh, UFC or MMA fighting has one earlier stage, which is the amateur level. Yeah. And then from there, you do the the indie shows and the smaller organizations. And then from there, because now there's so many fighters, before, if you did the smaller independent shows and you had a good record, UFC would call you. But now because there's so many fighters, it's not good enough to have a good record. You have to now make yourself a little bit more known. And I think this is where the pro wrestling element is coming from the bottom up. These fighters, just because of competition, realize now I have to differentiate myself by talking more, growing my Instagram. So I'm hearing that a lot more is agents and managers and MMA, before they even sign you, they want to know how many followers you already have, what's your Instagram or Twitter follows like. And they're always pushing their established fighters to constantly try to grow that as well. That's interesting because you think of, unlike wrestling, you think of like fighting as being something that just is objective. That's like, oh, well, the best fighters would end up in the UFC. No, not always. Because yeah. just like with the storyline, yeah. it could be that one person has a great record, but they're not that exciting. And it also depends on if they're able to be fortunate enough to find a manager or an agent. So sometimes what happens is you could be a so-so fighter, but you get great matchups and you have an agent or a manager who's out there hustling, trying to get you in. Or they happen to have a stable of fighters and you happen to fall into that same stable, just like in pro wrestling. And it says, hey, I have a guy who's up and coming. He's great. He's charismatic. He's a great striker. I think it makes sense to have him. And then somebody at the UFC might be able to say, well, how about this? I'll see what he's like in his next fight if he has a great finish. Mm -hmm. We'll make sure that if there's a last minute replacement, have him ready because he might get the call. And a lot of guys will make their debut on short notice. Got it. In biology, there's this idea of emergence where you're seeing some kind of new life form or new introduction of deers or wolves into an area and what happens. And UFC, we're watching that with sports where you're really watching how pro wrestling started like over 100 years ago. And you want to keep a pure athletic meritocracy and it's all real. And then you see how over time, these other elements start naturally coming in. And UFC is emerging 
post pro wrestling. So it doesn't want to be like that. But you realize, oh, they didn't aim to be like that. That just naturally happens over time. I'm not saying UFC will ever become fake like pro wrestling, but a lot of those same kind of things will ca- will naturally start coming Predetermined, up. not fake. <laughs> <laughs> As somebody who kind of paid attention to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, I saw the same thing where it started out completely anarchist, no rules. And people thought, oh, okay, we're finally at this anarchist utopia that we wanted as far as a currency and you see it now growing and naturally it's starting to govern itself and there's rules coming in Mm -hmm. and you realize oh the world started in anarchy and then given enough time we'll come up with rules and we'll come up with systems and it's the same thing with fighting you give it enough time and we'll come up with rules which they did which they didn't have before and then other people will come in like agents and managers and then we have to create the marketing side, the promotion side. So it's all those natural things that are just starting to bubble up. Sure. Is that as purest when it starts as cipher? And then it'll start looking like a lot of pre-existing things over time. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been a perennial podcast guest. That's kind of the sure. bigger thing. You've actually been a guest on podcasts more than we've had guests. Okay. So with that said, now checking Twitter and whatever, I see that you're about to start your own podcast or you have your own podcast or is that a joke or is that real? What is, what is going on? That's a great question. That's been the great question in the podcast sphere is Evan Susser has always been the perennial guest. We've known this in the podcast stratosphere. And then all of a sudden you're going to break that code and start your own podcast. What is going on here? Well, that's a great question. I feel betrayed. Am I starting a podcast? Is it just a joke? Yeah. Is it a joke? Is it real? We've talked about a lot on this podcast how the most exciting things are kind of in that uncertain territory between what's real and what's fake. So I think, unfortunately, I'm leaving it there. What? We're, we're not going to know on this podcast, but on December 2nd, we will maybe know. But you guys know. already have a Patreon. Yeah, we already have a Patreon. That part is real. Well, that's <laughs> the Patreon is real. This is what has upset me and Paul <laughs> is you don't even have a podcast and you already have patrons. Yeah. Well, you know, that what was that? that was priority. Number one was starting the Patreon. <laughs> that was that was that was my uh, my partner, potential podcast partner, but definite Patreon partner, David <laughs> Phillips. We said, first of all, this is a Patreon. You went the opposite way. We Most went people the, do the podcast for a while. We also have then- merch. We have merch. We've sold shirts. You're doing this completely backwards. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's backwards. <laughs> what, what you know? What's the whole benefit here? You want Patreons? You want to sell merch? We're doing. We're doing all that. Do you know how much work it is to prepare for a podcast? You got to get all the equipment. You know, at some point, does it there may or ne- may not be real? Does there need to be a podcast? Is a great question. Well, you're proving no because <laughs> you already got merch. We already got you already merch. Got we, have, we have a Twitter account that has uh, has over uh, fifteen hundred followers. Uh, we've got, we've got our followers, you know, people are, it's called Delhi boys pod, which makes you think it's going to be a podcast because it was pod right in the name of the Twitter account. It almost seems like kind of, uh, an offspring of Doughboys, right? Well, no, that's legally, that's not, that that's, can't be proven. That, that, okay. <laughs> um, okay. But, uh, but yes, Doughboys is a podcast that I'm on frequently. Uh, and this one's called Delhi boys. So you might think that it's like kind of a spinoff, but. Uh, they can't, they can't prove that legally. Uh, so yeah. Uh, but it definitely is a Patreon and we're definitely on merch. And then on December 2nd, we will discover 
if it is a podcast or not. This is like that, uh, those gimmicks were like, I remember as a kid, I was like, so excited for this gimmick where on Thanksgiving, they were going to unveil this new pro wrestler on the Thanksgiving show. Yeah. And then all of a sudden that pay-per-view event came and they had a giant egg there. And then out of that egg came this guy named the gobbledygooker. Do you remember this gimmick? It's like, it's famous for being such a bad gimmick. And then it turns out like it was a joke all along. There is no pro wrestler. It was just something for the kids to get excited for Thanksgiving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We were all thinking, oh, somebody from, you know, WCW is going to come Mm -hmm. or somebody from Japan or Vader or Uh something. And it turned out to just be a Thanksgiving Day mascot. So are you saying that Deli Boys is going to be a gobbledygooker? (laughs) I'm asking. I don't want that. I've already been through that once. I don't want that to happen again. Don't gobbledygook me again. I want to give a little more credit. Maybe it's more like Y2J. Yeah, like you, knew coming, you knew it was coming. You knew it was coming. But you didn't know. You didn't know it was going to be. I was really nervous for that because I, I was afraid it was going to be a gobbledygooker yeah. incident. Mm-hmm. And then, okay, he did show up and it was cool. Mm-hmm. But it could have gone either way. Yeah, no, I think that uh, we, you know, we, we've kind of started. Uh, we started getting the buzz. Can a podcast be too anticipated? I don't know. That's a good question. That's maybe a challenge that we'll have to face if. The podcast is real. But Mitch Live is real. Mitch Live is real. And tell us about that. What is that? Because it's on a whole new platform. You're, you guys are breaking all the rules now. Yes. Uh, so Mitch Live is similar to a show that I used to do at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater with my buddies Jack Allison and Van Show, where it's a late night talk show hosted by uh, Mike Mitchell, comedian and actor. And the hook is that he doesn't know anything that's going to happen. And that's 100% for real. And so he doesn't know who the guests are going to be. He doesn't even know when the shows are going to be. And we used to do it uh, live at the UCB Theater. Now we do it uh, at a a theater here in Koreatown. And we stream it live on Twitch. So that's that's been a fun thing. You're doing everything in reverse order uh-huh. from what normally goes, but maybe that's the right way. Yeah, in the movie, sure. uh, what is it? Ready Player One. Uh-huh. I even forgot the main character's name, but he wins his first race by going backwards. Right. And that was the key all along. Uh-huh. Maybe that's what it is. Right. Maybe you got to make sure that, do people even want this? Show hands. Right. <laughs> exactly. And then with the Twitter followers and the Patreons, then you're like, okay, so people do want this. As opposed to if you did all this work and no one listens, then... Well, that was a bust. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think it's fun to play around with these kind of uh, ideas, and uh, we'll see. With Mitch Live, though, you guys are on um, Twitch. Twitch was that part of this idea that you guys wanted to do something on a new platform? Yeah, I think that that was part of uh, that was part of it. That I think you know, as everyone you guys know, doing podcasts and everything that. It's just becoming easier to connect with people directly. Um, when we used to do this, sh- we used to do a similar show at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater where you could just be completely in control of the show and then a live audience would come. And it was hard to do, you know, for people who didn't love, live in Los Angeles to do something like that. But now with technology, you can do something like that and everyone can see it. What makes Twitch different from YouTube is YouTube has this feature, but Twitch is all about everything is live, right? People don't really watch things yeah, afterwards everything's too much. live. It's also, it can be very interactive. And also, too, I think that uh, Twitch, there's also more of a value in just, like, 
this is like really happening. You know, it's funny how certain things seem to be coming full circle because back in the day, they had a lot of those radio shows where you would have big name actors lend their voices to do radio shows. And now with the emergence of podcasting, it's essentially that, but with a little twist because now you can not only just stream it live, but you could also have cameras showing them and it's just them talking. Right. Yeah. Well, no, the live, you know, that was early television was all like live basically and then it was like a big thing that oh now we can tape and film you know have reruns like the um so uh you know there's a lot more live television there was a value on live and broadcast tv and we kind of have gone away from that and now with uh streaming there's such more you know value on things being live and twitter and everything you know feeling in an instant but this is like a talk show right there's a talk show how many episodes have you guys had so far? Uh, we've done three episodes so far. You guys have had guests each yeah, time? We've had uh, Eric Andre, uh, Kumail Nanjiani. But Mitch didn't know. Mitch doesn't know until they walk out on stage, and then he has to interview them unprepared. Ah. Armin Weitzman. But doesn't that make you nervous also being one of the people making this show? I have that- a lot of faith in uh, Mike Mitchell that he'll be either good and charming in the interview or it will be funny to see him not be prepared are you guys ever prepared to like run in and be a substitute if he's just having a brain fart nope i think we will (laughs) you know you've heard of the phrase beautiful disaster uh we're prepared for that possibility meltdowns are also great yeah right meltdowns are great you know i think that that's part of uh that's part of what it is it could also be kind of like those public access shows where back in the day, if you had money and you had time, you could say, I want to show on public access. And they're like, sure. Yeah, no, it, definitely, it definitely has roots in that. And it's kind of, you know, amazing but to see a show. I mean, those public access shows were really kind of amazing. Uh, and there's something to like, like, who, like, why does this exist? And there's something more honest and delightful about that than watching a show that exists to sell you uh laundry detergent at the commercial uh because if you watch most television shows you're like why does this exist oh for the commercials with those old public access shows <laughs> it's like why does this exist Man, the guy making it's crazy uh and so i think that with mitch live and that kind of streaming stuff you know very much is in the zone of like why does this exist like because the people want it to exist but you're coming in writing at a very interesting time with technology, right? Because there's been people who've kind of done the same kind of thing as you where they're writing and they're doing the hustle, let's say 10 years ago, but they didn't have a Twitch back then. They didn't have podcasts. So do you think with these new technologies, it's kind of democratizing things for you guys a little bit more? Or you guys just have to take advantage of this because it's getting harder and harder to make a full living on the Hollywood system? Or the Hollywood system doesn't know either because technology is coming in. They don't know how to do this. It's a good question. and I don't know what the answer is, to be honest. I don't think it certainly is not perfect democratizing, just like, you know, and it's not like a perfect market or anything where the best stuff gets rewarded. Same thing as what we're talking about with like fighters. So you're not one of those cynics who are like, I'm going to Twitch because it's going to overtake Hollywood and take no, over. No, I don't, I don't think that. Because a lot of that, people said that about YouTube and yes, that didn't happen. And also a lot of people said, oh, well, now, um, like movie stars, they won't, you know, agents won't be the ones that find movie stars. We will find the movie stars on YouTube. And that has proven to not be too successful. I mean, 
there are some YouTube stars who have maybe been in a movie or that kind of thing. But, you know, most uh, most movie stars are created in the same way that they have always been created. So, yeah, it's always interesting. But I think that, uh, like, we were again, like we were talking about with the uh, like, like, oh, how many Instagram followers do you have? I mean, it is funny, uh, you know, being on podcasts and, you know, all that kind of stuff went from like a thing that was kind of a fun hobby to do that now when I mention like, oh, well, I'm, you know, I was I'm on this podcast or that podcast, the Hollywood people are kind of like, oh, oh, really? Oh, wow. I'm interested in that. Oh, I, you know, because when did you I, notice that switch? I would say in the past year or so. Um, because people are getting, you know, aware of there's something going on that they don't fully understand or that maybe there's something cool or, uh, about podcasts or something like that. Uh, so it's very interesting that people care about like all these things that seem like the bullshit. And then we've, we're all awakening like, Oh, the bullshit is all that matters now. Whether they'll overtake Hollywood or not is yet to be seen, but it is less restrictive, right? Like, let's say writing a movie or a TV show, it has to follow a certain format or a structure. Whereas these, like with Mitch Live, especially, you guys are a little bit more unrestrained, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it and all, but all these things are different. You know, if you're uh, writing a network sitcom, for example, it has to be 21 and a half minutes because they have to sell commercials during the other time. And, you know, I worked on a television show. And if you want it to be, 21 minutes and 45 seconds you like have to have a whole discussion with all of these people who work in the networks and if you want it to be 21 minutes and 15 seconds even that's already so that is very restrictive then if you're on say hbo or netflix oh you could be 10 or 15 minutes but there are always guidelines and restrictions uh and then yes so when you are completely outside of the hollywood system if you're doing something like a podcast or if you're doing um you know something on twitch like mitch live then you're the only censor for yourself but then the audience is kind of guiding you and pushing you to what it is um so you know i think that i'm I'm blanking on what i the point that i have to say but i will just slow down and seem like i am leading to a good point that was a there. good point actually <laughs> I, I like you. that that was mm-hmm. that was on the money I've always wondered with movies, there's all these, like I was saying earlier about this dissemination of information and we think we know how it works. So we always hear about a movie script has to be like this many pages in, you're in the first act, second act, they're like really sticklers about this formula. And you always hear now regular people saying it's too formulaic as if we know what the formula is. By this point, five pages in, you have to have the inciting incident, you have to have this, that, and that. I guess it's a two-part question. How true is that? How much is Hollywood about following like this paint-by-numbers formula thing? And secondly, if that is true, how helpful is that in making something that is watchable for us? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, there are, you know, I sometimes when I like I'm having coffee with someone, you know, who is getting into this, they'll sit down to me like, well, I know, you know, I need a sequence too to be like this. I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> I've never even heard that term. And I'm, you know, a professional writer. Uh, the biggest things that people talk about in movies are first act, second act, third act. Uh, and that is pretty, that's you know, pretty loose. That's pretty loose. And that basically is the first act. You set everything up. The second act is the thing happening. And the third act is the resolution. 
and that's helpful and i think it's kind of a good useful vocabulary now there are examples of things with different structures than that uh there are things that are you know shakespeare's plays for example are written in five act structures there are you know things that have interesting two act structures. full metal jacket is an example of a two act structure movie but in general it's pretty helpful even if they're not linear most things do kind of follow a first act second act third act and then there are all sorts of other kind of ideas for movie structure that can be helpful and cannot be helpful but the execs aren't being like super pedantic about it. They're like, not. They're not in general super pedantic. Uh, in general, that's a sign that someone is not good at their job. The more pedantic they ah. are. But then there are other kind of concepts. Like there's this book called Save the Cat, uh, which has this concept of you have to have your hero save a cat when you first meet him to make him likable or something like that. So you know that's like in pro wrestling they call it shine right right, you right have to shine beginning. up yeah you have to shine up your baby face uh you know just something that makes your character likable and that's something that it can kind of be like it is intentionally simplistic and silly uh so it can be something that can be easily uh dismissed or mocked but if your character's not likable and they don't do something specifically likable it becomes a problem for most uh movies now Obviously, you're trying to find a creative and good way for them to do that, uh, you know, in a way that makes sense for the character. But, you know, so some of that stuff can be helpful. But also, I think, uh, like, all of that kind of structure and stuff is it's helpful if it's helpful and it's not helpful if it's unhelpful. When, you know, when someone is doing a bunch of things to check boxes literally for the sake of checking boxes, you know, it's not a report card at the end where you can be like, your script sucks. It's like, no, 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 no. I did this thing. I did that. Like no one cares. Give me my A. Right. Give me my A. Like you know, ultimately, a script has to be interesting, compelling, emotional, funny. You know, it has to be all of that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that people respond to if they like something. They say like, "Oh, I, you know, I was so invested. I cared. Like I was. I made me happy. It made me sad. It did all of that kind of stuff." No one says like, "Oh, the structure was so good." <laughs> Living in L.A. As you mentioned earlier, you are kind of adjacent to Hollywood. Everybody kind of who lives in L.A. and you kind of hear about it or know people in the periphery. So what I've observed, there seems to be a film writing cottage industry that's adjacent to the real industry where (laughs) it's the people who aren't making movies or getting paid or even have an agent or manager. And maybe they're in that adjacent place their whole career. Uh But seems like the stuff they focus on is different from when I talk to people who are writing movies, which is like, so you could tell me if you guys are talking about the same stuff. Cause something I see in the adjacent cottage industry is always the hero's journey. The hero's journey. It's gotta be about the hero's journey. And in my mind, I'm like, I bet working writers are not talking about the hero's journey like that much. They're probably like, is it good? Is it funny? Is it, am I engaged? Blah, 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 blah. Good. It's good. Whereas people who are adjacent, who are not in the industry yet, they're giving each other notes like, well, you should have had the hero jump over the flaming cross of whatever and into the belly of the beast to do this and that. You know, it's interesting. It's like we were talking about with fighting, like the difference between someone who is just going to do this as a hobby and never really like become real. And then the person who's going to become a professional fighter at the beginning, they look almost identical. So it's very hard to say. 
And also, there are examples of everything. There are, like, Dan Harmon, for example, who's a creator of Community. He is a professional writer, a very successful professional writer, and he is very much into the hero's journey. But maybe that's why all these Yahoo's are right. And he it. also is publicly and talks about it a lot. And that I think he has influenced a lot of aspiring writers. But also, I would say that that's the exception, that there are also plenty of screenwriters who do not talk about the hero's journey, who, you know, some of them maybe don't even know what that even means. You know, I think it's probably a phrase that people have heard. But that's not to say, and that's what's so weird is a person who's obsessed with the hero's journey and that's the way they write and that's very important to them. They could be successful with that, but also because it's very scary to try and get into this kind of stuff and you are searching for structure and something to just a checklist or a thing that you can say is if I follow this path, then it will all work out. And it doesn't work like that. Maybe it's just a way to get people to write. Also, people, maybe their main struggle is they're just having a hard time right. just and, and, writing. You know, because just writing anything, that's hard and scary. And it is a just complete, you know, blank canvas. But if it's like, okay, hero's journey, you need a dark night of the soul. You need, I don't know all the things. But if you need all of these beats, then it becomes like a Mad Libs where you can fill it in. And it becomes a little easier. It's also one of those things where, like you said, after a certain point, it becomes for me like, I love Dan Harmon. I love community. Rick and Morty being the most famous one. You see Rick trying to be more the hero and Morty slipping more into the dark side. But a lot of the famous ones or the famous shows that I like don't have a hero's journey. Right. There is no hero's journey of Seinfeld, right. of Curve, yes. of Sonny. Yes. All those people are degenerates. And if anything, they get worse as time goes on. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, some people then will try and be like, no, no, no. Actually, you know, uh, the way Seinfeld works is Kramer's a hero and you like they twist themselves in knots because they're trying to have their philosophy apply to a thing because otherwise if it can't, then it maybe is broken. But yeah, that is true. Of course, Seinfeld doesn't have the hero's journey. Right. Did George get better from seasons right. one through eight? No. no. Did Jerry? Yeah. No, none of these people did. Right. Uh -huh. So it's one of those things where it works to a fault until it doesn't, because if Seinfeld followed a formula, it probably would have lasted maybe and it, one yeah, or two seasons. And in fact, what Seinfeld was remarkable for was breaking formulas in so many ways. Uh, you know, they had the like the, the mantra, no hugging, no learning, because, you know, at the time, like all sitcoms, like there was a lesson and there was like emotion. And the fact that there was so little emotion in Seinfeld, among other things, was what was remarkable as opposed to, and also, you know, storytelling, how everything would collide and all of that. And then all these things. Now that's not interesting. You know, now in sitcoms, very common for all the plots come together and that becomes formulaic and boring. You're very good about writing kind of like, like a day job. You write every day, right? With your writing partner. So what's your process then to get yourself to write every day? I would say that it is uh, helpful to have a specific task and goal. So if you're, that's like manageable for a day. So if your goal for the day is I got to write the whole movie, you're never going to be able to do that. <laughs> but if your goal is, I have to write a scene or two scenes or a sequence that becomes more manageable. So I think that that's something that's helpful. Uh, having specific kind of goals for a day that are manageable and achievable. And then also having um, a plan and, you know, spending the time outlining. Yeah. How much of your writing process is the outlining part? 
Uh, I would say that there is a lot of outlining uh, that's done way more than I thought would be part of it uh, when I started. But then also, too, the best best way that I found, and I don't always follow this, is to have a very thorough, detailed outline and then deviate and change and abandon it when necessary. Are you guys kind of re-outlining, too, as you're writing? Yeah, and then re-outlining as you go um, is also. So speaking of which, I don't know if you have an answer to this. Do you have a sequel to Fistfight in mind? <laughs> Well, I don't think that the studio will be making one, but uh, we kind of always talked about the sequel being like, I mean, come on. I mean, you guys will probably guess, you know, what's what's the next chapter in any great feud is that they team up and <laughs> tag team. So we kind of always talked about uh, the idea that like, you know, a private school, uh, you know, comes next A Montessori door. school. Yeah, or something like that. And, you know, somehow, like, again, it was not very worked out, but, like, it's, like, if it was, like, The Rock and Jason Statham are, like, two rival teachers where, you know, somehow, like, Charlie and Ice Cube would, like, both be underdogs and somehow these guys, like, have to work together and, you know, somehow we're going to get, I don't know how exactly, like, how this would all work out was not, was never really figured out, but just the idea of Charlie and Ice Cube having to work together and then having, you know, to fight, you know, foes formidable, you know, that would be formidable to both of them. Right. Because that's what I would think just right. because wouldn't it be cool if they teamed up right. like Batman yeah. and Robin? Right. Uh, and that was and that you know, there was a sequence uh, in a draft of the script that had to get cut for budget reasons where they did like halfway through kind of like team up. It was in the sequence where they get arrested and you know it was like an early like false alarm that like charlie thinks that his like wife is giving birth and he like needs to go and the police are like kind of like pulling him and then like he was like hey this man's having a baby and he like takes over the car and he's like protecting and it was like fun to see them work together uh, or that idea rather didn't even get shot but yeah i think that that's always and that's something that is uh that's always very rewarding uh, I mean, it's a little laughable in the Fast and the Furious movies that everyone who's a foe ends up becoming family. <laughs> you know, like in the very beginning, it's uh, Vin Diesel and Paul Walker and Paul Walker's investigating him. And then by the end, you know, they're like together. And then like later, then The Rock comes in and he's like after them. But then by the end, The Rock is part of it. And then like Jason Statham comes in and he kills like their friend, and then all but then by the end he's at the barbecue. I'm like, the, they're very forgiving in this this group in Fast. Well, and the, the Fast Fury. and the Furious, they're like the Borg. Right, they just assimilate everybody that ever right. comes in contact with them. Exactly, but there's something you know very satisfying about about enemies becoming friends. Uh, there's something that uh, that we kind of crave uh, in seeing that. And in the same way that it's also delightful and a different thing to see friends turn on each other. That's like kind of there's something that uh, that we crave in seeing those kind of stories. You've kind of taken us through your hero's journey of. Sure. You live somewhere else. You got to L.A. You work your thing. <laughs> uh -huh. You go to a movie. Uh -huh. You got people to read it. You got paid. Blah, blah, sure, blah. Sure, You're sure. working your way up the ranks. You're like little Mac and, and uh -huh. Mike Tyson's punch out. You uh -huh. got to Glass Joe. You got through everybody. Mm -hmm. But now. Mike Tyson would be in movie world would be writing stuff for Marvel Disney. Sure. Well, how do I see you in a Marvel movie? How do you write like a Marvel? Well, that, that is what, a good is question. That? That, how, is, how does that, that, is, that is a good question. That's the final stage boss. It's a good question because 
is it, I guess, is really <laughs> is really the question that I kind of wonder, because if you, you know, how many writers of Marvel movies do you know? Probably not too many. Now, writers are not that well known in general, but, you know, those kind of movies, they go through a lot of writers and they have a lot of the studio has a lot of control. So is that the ultimate vision of success as being a cog in this very huge machine or is it being like you know judd apatow or uh, you know like someone who you're where you're creating your own thing that you have your own signature also television that has a lot more you know like you know showrunners and creators like someone like dan Harmon. would dan Harmon be more successful if he was writing like avengers 5 or is he more successful you know, kind of creating his own thing that has like a signature of uh, that's him. So that's kind of, I think, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing of like, what does, uh, what is a big success look like? Or is, you know, writing awards movies is like, you know, being nominated for an Oscar. Is that the ultimate version of success? And that's a good question. I don't know what the answer is to that. You don't have one personally, or has it evolved over time? I think it's evolved over time. So what would your version of success look like is it the dan Harmon model is it uh russo brothers yeah i think that uh you know i've done this more i think that uh more like the you know uh the dan Harmon model or you know just any sort of uh person who's kind of able to create their own kind of niche and their own specific thing and are able to do that thing rather than the absolute you know biggest and loudest thing especially too because uh the big and loud things like there's so many of them now you know i think when i first uh I first moved to hollywood if i if you know they told me like oh like you know you might have a chance to write a star wars movie like that would feel like, oh my god you know that's amazing but now it's like well star wars movies there's one coming out like every year <laughs> some of them that aren't rare. that they're like they're not that some of them aren't that good uh you know or marvel you know all the, there's so much that that doesn't seem as valuable as maybe it once did so i think that for me and also as far as like lifestyle you know just the idea of being able to create a thing that you like that you have some control out, uh, over and that could also find an audience i think that that would be what a vision of success to me would be. Yeah, we need something to rival Harmontown. What right, about exactly. Town? Yeah. Like, you know what? That's <laughs> a nice ring to oh, it. Yeah, yeah, I'll yeah. go with it. It may know. or may not be real. Yes, it may or may not be real. All right. With that said, we've been going four and a half hours, I believe. So <laughs> let's wrap this up. This is the point where I am supposed to ask you where they can find you. Do you want to be found? That's the other thing. I definitely want to be found. Uh, you know, where can I mean, they find you then? At Evan Susser on Twitter. At Deli Boys Pod, also on Twitter, Deli Boys on Patreon. That's the most important one. Uh, start there. All other places after that, sure, whatever. But yeah, find me. Say hello. I hope that this was a good conversation that people that people liked. What do you think, Sam? I like how you started using the radio voice all of a yep. sudden, and now you mm-hmm. got all like mm-hmm. mellow FM. Yeah, hashtag Susser Town. Yep, great. <laughs> <laughs>